Hey everyone, welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Today on episode 206, we're discussing the first half of The Fall of Babel, the final volume in Josiah Bancroft's Books of Babel. I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey, and joining me again is Lauren McCaffrey. Hey guys. <laughs> Before we head into the episode itself, a quick reminder that we're on Patreon. Support for the show there helps keep the lights on and gives you access to all kinds of fun bonus content such as exclusive episodes, exclusive original fiction, and more. But now, The Fall of Babel kicks off with the long-awaited return of Adam, now a captive of the mysterious society at the apex of the tower. He's brought into their domed city, Nebos, where he's made a pseudo-captive under the watchful eye of Runa and thanks to her mother, Ida. Adam discovers that he's famous among the Nebosans because Ida has created essentially a movie of his life, using the information stored in his own eye, torn out in the parlor. He's treated like a celebrity at first, though he does have to do his part for the running of the town. That includes work with the Lumen Guard, and there he discovers a whole society of Hods near the top of the tower, including many orphans, who are constantly sending gifts of supplies to Nebos. When one of them tries to send an infant with the supplies, Adam is forced to send the baby back, but he makes a promise to the Hods that he will build them a bridge to to Nebos. Together, Adam and Runa work to ferry the Hods across, but Ida discovers them. After a narrow escape from the rampaging conservator, Ida and her cronies capture Adam and take him to the Nautilus to execute him. Instead, Adam and Runa fight back, and Ida and Elrin are consumed in the flow of the slow water. When the Hod children make their appearance at Nebos, Adam and Runa are put on trial, and were left with their fates hanging in the balance. Meanwhile, Senlin is aboard the Hod King, one of many Hods forced to operate its legs. He is quickly taken from that position, however, and folded into Luke Marat's inner crew. Here, Senlin discovers the truth. Marat is no cripple, and he has a group of wakemen working for him. Indeed, Marat is lying to the Hods about a lot of things, and plans to set himself up as a tyrant. He keeps books for himself, and lives a life of quiet luxury behind closed doors. While the Hod King sets into motion, the crew of the State of Art is still grappling with Voletta's new reality, and constant setbacks in their quest to acquire the rest of the paintings. At Oyadin, they find a, a Hod agent in the act of stealing the painting, and Voletta gives chase before being saved by Iron. The Hod King surfaces on the outside of the tower and exchanges fire with the State of Art. Though the ship's cannons cannot break through the Hod King's armor, it is nearly knocked off balance and Marat orders a retreat. In the aftermath of the fight, Rettleman discovers a dynamic 3D map of the tower in the State of Art, and they realize they can use it to track the Hod King. They move on to the ringdom known as the Cistern, which is flying plague flags. Edith quickly realizes that they're lying and convinces the guard to drop the charade. He brings them in where they find a small and barely self-sufficient colony that lives in a massive lake. They still have their painting, and while Edith moves to answer questions from the citizens, Iron and Voletta head down into the observatory under the lake to get the painting. And it is at this very moment that the Hod King strikes. So. Huh. Uh... This book had a different tone. This is a really interesting thing. So, uh, like, launching right into to style and stuff. That's where I'm... Yeah. yeah, it's... Like, I've heard a lot of, of people online saying that this book is controversial, that there were mixed reactions to it. And I can understand that from the outset because it starts with Adam. And we have to rewind so much where we didn't get any of him in the last book. And so it, it feels like an 
a weirdly slow pace to begin the final book of a series because really we're turning the page back to events that are taking place during not the final book of the series. And it does make me a little concerned about how uh, Bancroft is going to pull all of this together um, because he, you know, he just has a lot of work to do to tie Adam back into the main plot and get him caught up in the timeline and make the top of the tower work in a satisfying way with all this really dynamic action packed stuff going on elsewhere. Yeah. So I'm definitely coming at this from a different perspective than you. Hmm. I had been really curious about what Adam was doing and I liked this satisfied my curiosity. So I wasn't really hankering for more. I was happy to get some answers and to get some big, big answers. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't dislike the Adam stuff. I'm just concerned about the pace of the book. In fact, I really enjoyed everything with Nebos and Adam and Runa. I thought the whole idea of the scintillations was delightfully creepy. <laughs> um, the only thing that I was a little disappointed with was I wanted there to be something more, uh, I don't know, like mythological about Adam as a figure. Oh, I yeah. wanted there. I'm, <laughs> I'm still searching for meaning in Bancroft choosing to name this character Adam <laughs> and all of the biblical allusions in this series. I want there to be something more concrete for me to grab onto, and I'm not seeing it. Adamos Boreas. Yeah, like you could. I, I don't know. Like, where's well, where's the tree? Where's the tree symbolism with Adam? Oh, where is the first man symbolism with Adam? You know, and and it, he still has half a book to to make this a thing. So I'm still holding on to some hope. Yeah. So I. I, I wanted it to be there. It wasn't. So you can be right? Not not necessarily so I can be <laughs> right. It's I... And this ties back to the sorts of things people were telling me, uh, were selling me on the series months and years ago and saying that if I liked Book of the New Sun, if I liked Gene Wolfe, this might scratch that itch a little bit. And it really hasn't. I was going to say, I don't see that in the same vein, but somebody might have to explain it to me. Why? Yeah. I'm like, I am definitely enjoying the series, but it is developing in a way that feels a lot more like a, a Robert Jackson Bennett or a Brandon Sanderson series, not a Gene Wolfe kind of series. Yeah. Well, I keep getting these hints at it with the different ringdoms and how like the rings of hell they are like the divine trilogy divine comedy comedy thank you um i thought there was more more of that in the first book than anything oh, for else sure. yeah it was easy to assign like different vices to different ringdoms through the first four yeah you know with like gluttony and with all the the beer the bicycles well it, and then with hedonism and and 
and then uh, you know profligate spending on the third level of the baths and then greed in, in New Babel. Well, even in the theater, keeping the furnace running, it's all about you, your experience. Yeah, that's the hedonism. That's like the people can live out True. whatever insane, depraved... That's why people go back to the parlor over and over and yeah. over again. Yeah. Yeah. But but when we go to places like the cistern here, it's hard to to pull something out of that. Um, we get we have some, you know, with Oyedin, the the gambling ring where everybody's naked. That's um, that's interesting. That definitely had me like thinking for a while. Just the concept of this ringdom. Yeah, all glass, no privacy, like And the way that society was influenced by mm-hmm. that, I liked I liked that. I will say one thing for this. This series from front to back is an incredible monument to Josiah Bancroft's imagination. I... It is just such a creative thing he has written here. I gotta say, this book, I feel like he's really come into his own. He has so much more confidence in his writing that I'm feeling when I when I read it. And there were a lot of parts where I was like, oh, man, you know, I think I should reread that and mull it over. Because I think hmm. as I'm rushing through it that it's too... I'm not giving it its full time. Interesting. And I definitely felt like his editor, whoever that is, has been a good influence. Yeah, uh, it's it's been a nice, uh, pretty smooth arc going through this. And it only got smoother. Um, I, I thought there were a couple of, you know, like... Bumps along the road. I I don't remember exact details, but I I do recall during the Hod King, I had a couple of criticisms of uh, some changes in the writing. Yeah, but I I felt like this is much more polished and it shows that there was help. Sure. Um, well, Well, I don't see it too much more polished than the Hod King. I think the biggest... No, I mean, like, since he had the editor for The Hod King, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. Okay. Uh, but yeah, let's let's see. Style-wise, um, I don't recall, I don't remember there being this with the other books, but at the beginning of this... Wait, what the heck? Now my Kindle's not... Giving me a table of contents. That's annoying. Um, At the beginning of this book, we have a refresher for uh, the devotees of the Senland Saga from the Daily Reverie Arts and Theater in anticipation of its conclusion by Orrin Robinson. (laughs) Like, I love... So, this is a topic of some discussion in the real world, um, you know, kind of... Writing community or? Yeah, especially the sci-fi fantasy community. There are so many big, long series now. And with readers bouncing back and forth between series and things, there's been a, a growing outcry for refreshers at the beginning of books. And I think there's a good argument to be made for it. Uh, 
traditionally how a lot of authors have handled this is you get something like in The Wheel of Time or often in Brandon Sanderson's books where you're five, six, seven books into a series and the author is still taking time out at the beginning of a book to explain things again about the magic system or about the characters. Like you'll get references to yeah. what the Ajahs do yeah. in like Winter's Heart or Crossroads of Twilight, yeah. nine or 10 books into the Wheel of Time. You'll get references to how Allomancy works in the Hero of Ages, the final book of the Mistborn trilogy. And and that can be really frustrating for a lot of readers because it, it comes across as like, okay, why are we doing this? I already know how this works. Well, but there are some readers who want that. And so this is an elegant way, the idea of a refresher that you just plop at the beginning of your book, you say, okay, this is what has happened in the series so far. An even more elegant way to do it <laughs> is what Bancroft did here. And I love it. It is an in-world artifact. You know, he's already had this this conceit of the in-world texts as epigraphs. And now he's using this as like a forward to the book and writing it from the pen of a character in the story. And it's so much fun. I, I, I bet he had a blast writing this. He seems like he's having fun. Like Oren Robinson has such a, a particular voice. He's good at that. That, that is like nobody else in the series. Right. It just fits for Pelthia, you know? And <laughs> oh, I was I was such a fan of that. Are you gonna quote some of it? Um I, I wasn't planning on it, but I I don't know, I could I could read the last paragraph of it. There's only one way to discover the answers to these questions. Stay at home. Close the curtains. Don't answer the door. I shall attend the evening's premiere of the Fall of Babel on your behalf. And tomorrow, when you unfold the daily reverie and thumb through to find me waiting for you, I shall embrace you with revelations startling, strange, and disappointing, perhaps, but a finished and decisive end, at the least. Good night, dear reader. Tomorrow shall banish every question, every doubt. Good night and more pleasant dreams. Your humble servant, Oren Robinson. <laughs> so this, this is the reason why I felt like he starts off so confident so ready is like this kind of tone in, yeah. from the get-go yeah yeah that's yeah oh, and now after the second interruption of our episode because our cat is trying to get into food that he shouldn't um <laughs> uh yeah so we were talking about the the oren robinson intro um and yes it does come across as a a writer with supreme confidence uh it feels and, like Bancroft is just yeah, comfortable and joyful in his writing. And I think the joy is a, a good word as well, because that ties back to the sheer creativity of this book. This is the thing that has stood out to me the most so far. Every new thing in this series is just some ridiculous, crazy thing. And I'm like, <laughs> man, how did he think of this? How did he think of all of this together? I, it's it's awesome. Yeah, I, I'm having the most fun of any of the books right now. Ooh. So halfway through the book, halfway through the book, which one was my favorite at the 50%? I think the Hod King for me. 
the first half of the Hod King is my favorite first half of a book so far. Okay. I think I think I would go the Hod King, Senlin Ascends, Fall of Babel, Arm of the Sphinx would be my ranking of the first fifty percent of each. Cool. See, I don't know. I have to think about that. Mm-hmm. I'd probably have to reread. I know Senlin Ascends will probably be your least favorite because you are. Nope, not favorite. Mm-mm. Yeah, uh, that is before you liked Senlin at all. Did not like. <laughs> was not. Um, yeah, no caring. Um, oh, okay. So this this brings me to another style point that I had, and um, a concern that I actually brought up to you when I had started reading this book, but before I got to the fifty percent mark, and that was the structure of uh, the Hod King, the structure established in the Hod King, and then carried forward here where we have each part from principally either one character's point of view or a couple of characters in close proximity to each other, and then these interludes with Senla. Yeah. Uh, in the Hod King, I think it was you know, on the Black Trail, and here it's in the Belly of the Beast. Yeah. He... Uh, and by he, I mean Bancroft, he set himself up for a challenging structure in this book. And I was really worried when I'm like, okay, we just went through part one trying to catch Adam up to the rest of the story. And part one is a substantial chunk of this, like like a, a substantial chunk. And, and I'm like, wow, he doesn't have much space left. Like it's a... Let's see here. It's a 636-page book, and part one is 202 pages. Boom. So a third of this book is dedicated just to catching Adam up. and has one belly of the beast, Senlin thing at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, there is not a whole lot of book left. And if we're keeping to this structure of characters, Senlin, characters, Senlin, and then presumably the final part will be everybody. I'm like, I don't know if there's enough room here. But then, middle of, after chapter six in part two, from the belly of the beast two. And I'm like, okay, this is good. This is smart. He is giving us these Senlin interludes, not just between parts, but even inside of parts. We need that. So he's breaking from that structure that he had ostensibly set up in in the Hod King and was carrying over here. And that gives him the leeway to build Senlin, the main character, to build his story alongside the others and set up what I assume is going to be a climax where we jump around different points of view a lot, like we're used to in a, a Brandon Sanderson book, for instance. So, uh, yeah. And, and we, for, for the record, for people, uh, listening, I said halfway through the book in my summary, uh, in my intro, we read to the end of chapter 10 in part two. So we have gotten two from the belly of the beast chapters at this point. Right. And they're, they are fairly long chapters. Like, yeah, well, so on the audio, they're an hour long each. Okay, yeah, like, I'm looking at the length of the chapters. Um, most standard chapters in this are 
10 to 15 pages. And then from the belly of the beast, one is 34. And from the belly of the beast, two is 27. So they're anywhere from two to three times longer than a normal chapter. Uh, yeah, but I don't know. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to grapple with as both a reader and a writer for myself. That like he has built up an expectation of how these books are going to be structured, and then changes it, and he does it pretty often. Like we didn't have this sort of interlude multi-POV structure in the first book at all. And he could have, with Maria, he could have told us what was going on right. with her, and, but we didn't. But the way the first book sets up our expectations is, this is Thomas Semlin's story. And we're going to go, you know, place by place. Yeah, and it's going to be about him climbing the tower. Right. And then at the end of part one, suddenly we get, you know, a little bit of Edith. Do you, do you think he's an outliner or a fly by the seat of the pants? Because I kind of get the impression he's the latter. Ooh, that is a great question. But I think maybe he changed that for these last two. Or three. No, I think he's an outliner. I think there was too much structure, too much deliberate structure to the first book. Um. I think the biggest thing here is that the first book was a, you know, like passion project, self-published thing mm -hmm. that he was just doing. And then it started gaining steam and his approach changed. I don't think his approach changed in that, like, he swung the pendulum from like a strict outliner to a total gardener. But I do think his priorities in the writing of the books changed after, you know, suddenly uh, there's a lot more expectation put upon him. And then even more, now he's working with a traditional publishing house and a, a more robust editorial infrastructure. Like, yeah, like there, there's a different structure. There's a different skeleton to Semlin Ascends as there is in Arm of the Sphinx. And there's a different again in the Hod King and then we start this one off and it feels like it's going to be the same as the Hod King but then suddenly it's not and it feels like oh I'm really close to the end of this thing I need to make all the puzzle pieces fit together and I can't stick to that strict um, part interlude part interlude part interlude part denouement you know so I guess I keep thinking when, when you're like, oh man, like he doesn't have space. I'm just, my attitude is like, well, be like Brandon then and just make space. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I also realize that most of your readers are not accustomed to that and they don't want to do like a giant, giant book. Um, it this is standard size, right? Yeah, this is, this is I would say, a fairly average length for a fantasy book. Um, I think the bigger issue isn't necessarily fan or reader expectations. It's Josiah Bancroft is not the cash cow Brandon Sanderson is. He doesn't get to just 
say. Choose how long his book is and, and have more or less unrestrained, you know, uh, because it's expensive to print bigger books. And unless you're making more money, it's hard for a publisher to justify. And so if you have somebody like Bancroft, who I would guess for, I'm trying to remember if this was Orbit, I think it was Orbit UK. He's probably a like mid to low list author oh. for them. He's not making them a ton of money. So they're not going to be like, yeah, by all means, write an 1100 page doorstopper. It's Orbit UK? I think so. So that's why I have a British reader. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I know it was a British publisher. It, it was... Yeah, it's Orbit. It's Orbit. Okay. Um, yeah. Got it. <laughs> that's why it's The Fall of Babel. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I have to admit, a lot of this is conjecture on my part. I don't know what was actually going on behind the scenes with the, the publishing of these books. Uh, a lot of it's, you know, in informed guessing, uh, just based on my knowledge of how the publishing industry works. And, and you know, I've done some research. I've seen some interviews where he's talked a little bit about things, but... Uh, yeah, it, it's. Uh, I haven't read another series that has gone through this sort of, um, like its own story arc. Yeah. Uh, where yeah. it went from unknown self-published thing to self-published sensation to, you know, uh, picked up and finished by a, uh, you know, major publisher. I know there are other series that have had arcs like this. I know there are things like uh, authors like Anthony Ryan with um, Blood Song. Blood Song, I think, was the first book I ever remember hearing that was like, this was self-published and it did so well that... Um, they picked it up. That some, yeah. Don't some we have that? Publisher. Yeah, I, I actually have a copy of Blood Song, but I've never read it. I was going to say, I, I've seen that cover. Yeah. Uh, I had heard... Again, one of my old co-workers um, read the whole series, and he said the first one was the best. And that kind of Whoa. stopped me from from ever picking it up. I'll probably get to it at some, you know, some rainy day, some Friday evening when we decide to, like, sit read down and song. read a whole. Yeah. But, but then other self-published things that I've tried, I've only read the first book of because I wasn't into it. So... This is the first self-published thing that was good enough to really grab me and drag me along for the whole ride. Well, I didn't... I would have stopped at the first book. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm glad I didn't, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm really enjoying... Honestly, I, I feel like we took a steep turn as soon as we met the Sphinx. Mm -hmm. And from then on, I've been all on board. Yeah, because it became... It went from, okay, Senlin is trying to find his wife to Senlin is part of a massive political intrigue that is on the verge of war inside the tower. <laughs> it went from a very small self-contained thing to an epic fantasy. Yeah. And, and the number of ringdoms is really kind of getting out of control I'm at this to, point. I'm trying to remember, have we gotten, uh, is it 64 ringdoms? Is that the actual number, I want to say? 
I don't know I don't because remember. we were we were told that we were given a number that was not accurate. So in the first book, there there are points where different people are arguing about how many, and yeah. the numbers we're given are like 30, 36 or forty two or something like oh that. Oh my gosh! But then I feel like we were given a definitive number by the Sphinx, maybe, yeah. or by the the Nebosans. Yeah. Um. I think it was a... I think it was 64. I think it's 64. But I'm not... Don't don't uh, put money on that. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's a lot to monitor. I mean, we're clearly not going to see all 64. Obviously. Yeah, like we, we've seen... So we got four in the first book. And then we've seen... What? We got two more in the second with the Silk Gardens and the Sphinx. Do we get more than that in the second book? Do you count the Black Trail? No. The Black Trail is is its own thing. Mm. It's not a ringdom. I know, but it's a whole society embedded in the... But we're talking about ringdoms. Fine. (laughs) Uh, And then in the third book, we see Pelphia. And then at the very end of the third book, there's like mention of another one, which I can't even remember the name of. And they go there. We like actually see them go there at the beginning of this, where they find out that there is a, a fake painting. It had already been stolen. And then we get Oyedin and we get the cistern and we get Nebos. So we've seen, I don't know, like 10 or 11 ringdoms. There's a lot of unexplored tower. Um, and it, it honestly makes me wonder if we're going to get to see things from the unexplored part of the tower. There's later in 2023 here, uh, Bancroft is releasing a short fiction collection of stories in this world. Well, I, I'm excited. Yeah. I don't know if that means it's all in the tower or if there are going to be stories outside of the tower. I, I kind of hope it's all in the tower. I'm not that interested about outside not yet anyways um i mean what about their hometown you don't care no (laughs) (laughs) it's a little fishing village whatever okay what do we get anything from the bricklayer do you think oh yeah the bricklayer is definitely showing back up uh especially now that we know he's got that like transport technology and he dodged the i don't know if it's transport but yeah what else would it be um, you could reform yourself. Transport technology. Mm-mm, yes. Mm-mm. I disagree with you. <laughs> it moves him from one place to another. Did it move him or did it just change his particle size? For all intents and purposes, it moves him from one place to another. What was that bone apple tea? All in intense, intensive. All well, that's, that's a yeah, super common... Anyway, that's irrelevant. Um, Yes, the bricklayer is showing back up again. Uh, Like, I wanted... Okay, so there was a brief moment when... uh, When Adam first goes to the, like, library in Nebos and meets the conservator. Yeah. and And the conservator makes a comment about, like people having things checked out. Yes. And then he says, when Ida shows up, he's like, you have, 
and outstanding. And he's like, you have the eye of the bricklayer. And my immediate thought was, holy crap, Adam is the bricklayer. Oh. He is the first man. No. He is. And I'm, I still think there's an outside chance of this. I still think there's an outside chance of this. I'm not with you. That there is something. I don't want it. And this would be the only way I could like get along with you trying to semantically nitpick the transport technology thing <laughs> is if it actually <laughs> like reverted the bricklayer to a baby. Huh. And he and is placed Adam. him far outside mm-hmm. as a twin. Hmm. Uh huh. Hmm. Saying there's Adam and Eve parallels there. You, you know origins he... of humanity. Origins of the tower. You know, um, his twin now has the capabilities of going all the way back in time and could know the answer to this already. She could, but she doesn't know that she could know. Yeah, she does. She spent time with the Red Hand. The Redelman? Thank you. No, my, my, she knows that she can go outside of time and see all stuff, but she doesn't know specifically, like, I should go back and look at the top of the tower when the bricklayer died to see what happened with him. Well, like, she she went all the way back to their childhood, their birth. Mm-hmm. But she didn't go. She wasn't like. I wonder if we existed before this. She. That's could. my. She could. That's my point. She doesn't know that this is something worth checking out. Well, she could go, go all the way back to their conception and then. Could yes. Mm. I'm. I'm not disagreeing, but. You're trying to, like, make this a hard, well, this isn't the case because she didn't do it. When she doesn't know, like... I just don't want you to be right about it because I don't <laughs> like it yet. <laughs> I, I'm not sure of it because this series so far has bucked any expectation of assigning symbolism to names. But... I think it would be really interesting. I think it would make the story richer. I don't know. I don't know. Should we get into actual events and Yeah, people? characters. Let's talk. Uh, so let's start with Adam, uh, since we're already kind of there. Okay. So I want to <laughs> I want to tell you what, what I've been not telling you. Okay. So when all of a sudden he comes in and he's famous... My first assumption was that they have cameras of some sort. They have surveillance of the rest of the tower and they've been watching him for some reason. And this is like their activity that they do is they just spy on people and then they all collectively. That's definitely what Adam's impression was. He was like, you've been spying on me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it did not occur to me, even when they said, there's a film about you, it didn't occur to me that it could be from his eye. Yeah. I just was like, oh, you that guys really are weird. Good reveal. Yeah. You guys are just weird. You stare at people's lives. And they do, and they're weird. But. Yeah, I, like, like I said at the beginning of the episode, I understand why some people could be really frustrated with the direction the story went with Adam. Uh, that people are like way more into the war and Semlin's story and his, you know, struggle to reunite with Maria. And then suddenly you're like sidetracked for a like 
social drama following a character who wasn't even in the previous book like that that could that's a very justifiably frustrating thing for a lot of readers but i i really enjoyed it i liked reading about the city i liked the world building it did i liked the character development for adam seeing him go from such a jaded person to recognizing the only way he could be happy is to break off this mask that crack his shell and and just accept he doesn't need to like fulfill these expectations he's put upon himself what do you think about him having a relationship for the first time i like it i like runa yeah so i was asking drew what her exactly her name was because <laughs> the audible it's runer or i can't even quite do it right but it sounds like it could be runer rumor or runa and all of them would be pronounced the same way a little little bit of muddy uh, enunciation there well that's by the by the narrator that's british english (laughs) (laughs) oof lauren lauren going in hard at our our uh, british audience Oh, so, I mean, <laughs> I've, I've heard Martha be pronounced Mother. I mean, look, there are so many, What what is it, like, the greatest density of dialects per, Correct. Uh, in area in Correct. England, and I anywhere don't, in the world? I don't understand, because yeah. it's so small, how, and, and we have the internet, and we've had mass like well, communication for... hey we've still had mass communication and transportation improvements for more than a century now mm-hmm. and yet the dialects didn't merge what is going on <laughs> it's well, magic i am not a linguist i haven't studied this so i'm sure there's an answer yeah but it's still <laughs> mind-blowing because this doesn't happen everywhere well this sorry, is sorry. Go yeah, on. Go Lauren's on. ADHD is getting the better of her right now. Um, <laughs> I okay. I, I like Runa. I like Runa and Adam together. I I'm very curious to see what happens with the, you know, the the vote in Nevos and. I'm happy that there is a how, Runa. Yeah. Like in this society, clearly nobody's much like her. Her father. Oh yeah, definitely. Not. Her father, maybe. So that's the only thing I kind of didn't like about her was it, it was too, um, too on the nose, too expected that like, she's not like the other girls, you know that sort of thing. That's why they fall in love. Yeah. That that. Yeah. But I didn't look the gift horse in the mouth. I was very happy. Yeah, you know? I I had a. I had a suspicion of it from the very beginning when she was rude to him and Eldrin was cool to him. I was like, this is usually how romance arcs start. (laughs) So, and then, and then when, you know, the vote happened and they come out and Ida's like, Runa gets to be your minder. And I was like, oh yeah, this is definitely going to be a romance arc. (laughs) What do you think of Ida? Oh, she's awful. Uh, she reminds me a great deal of Avery Shanks in Blade of Taishao. Ooh. Mm, the dragon. She is awful. She's, although she, she's more 
Um, she's capable she's of love. Cougar. Ida's a cougar. Ida's like going after Adam. Yeah. And and that's like there's its own like there are different kinds of predators, Avery and Ida, but they're both predators. Okay, so Avery's capable of love though, and I'm not sure Ida is. Uh yeah. That's yeah, that is a pretty distinctive difference. Um but just yeah, the when when we first got introduced to her as this like aristocratic businesswoman who's like really manipulative and, and artistic cold and like see but uh, she presents herself as an artist yeah, i i dislike that whole thing and i'm pretty sure bancroft wants people to dislike that idea of these people being artists um because they're not actually creating anything they're what they're doing things. is taking things away and then presenting the remainder of the product well she insults obviously runa's art yeah and Runa is creating. Mm-hmm. I I thought that whole dinner party was interesting. I wasn't sure what to make oh, of it. Oh, the at like first. speed dating dinner party. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it. Was a cool idea. I it it was a cool idea. I'm pretty sure I would hate it, but I was reading it thinking like, wow, Lauren would love this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that when I was reading it. <laughs> I would enjoy the the aspect of like the culinary experience. Okay, where you're just like trying all these different things yeah the the quick dynamic nature of it where did you get a kick out of him like them handing him spoons oh, gosh. <laughs> or did you hate that i i don't know if i i didn't hate it i didn't i don't think i loved it i, I didn't have like any particular emotion toward it i guess it, it was just like one of those like oh this is like the character quirk now um and he played into it and it was fun mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because that was the cynical side of Adam that he needed to shed. Yeah. I will say I expected him to absolutely jump on the engineering that he was shown. Like immediately. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he didn't. He did pretty fast. Yeah, but I expected him to... Like as soon as he like, dive in. got brought down to the Nautilus, he was like, like, this is really cool. Yeah, but I would have spent like 10 hours down there and he was like, well, he's not like he's not allowed to. <laughs> yeah, but he didn't even try to manipulate. Hmm. He's on a journey away from manipulation. Okay, fair. All right, what do you think of his idea here of bringing these children in? Uh, it's good for the story. It's good for, um laying groundwork to connect Nebos and Adam to what's going on further down the tower. Uh, I do think it's a little on the nose thematically. Um, like the, the idea of like the, the snooty people living at the top of their ivory tower, you know, and then they must be shown the plight of the peasants that they're ignoring uh, it felt a little on the nose, but I don't know. It's, it's good. Definitely curious to see what complication is going to arise from it because it's. I cannot imagine Bancroft is just going to let this like go or like, oh, there's a vote. Runa and Adam are allowed to go free, and we're going to take them all in, and we're going to live happily ever after. That's no way. definitely not going to happen. Um, do you think Adam ends up 
staying in Mebos? I kind of do. You know, but, I haven't given this any thought about like where I see Adam ending. But for reader satisfaction, he's got to see Valida, so. I mean, like, the, the thing that I really want to say is going to happen because of my desire for there to be symbolism is that Adam and Valetta are going to be cast out from the tower, cast out from Eden. Oh no, Drew. But, but I don't like, I, I just, I can't let go of this, but I don't actually think that's what's going to happen. <laughs> I, uh, that would be sad. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. Okay. Do you want to talk about the bricklayer now? I don't know if I have much to say about the bricklayer. Uh, okay. Well, theorizing and and what we've learned, I don't know. I th- I, was... I mean, I've already talked about my theory about the bricklayer. Okay, what about what he did in the past? Because I thought that was interesting. What he was trying to build here, like what he a was city trying to do for the Hods. Like after they're done with their service, they get this paradise on top. No, there's more to the story. What exactly did, were they silencing him for? Why? Oh, you think there's more to it than that? Oh, yeah. I don't. We keep getting cut off when we get things from from him. I think that's... I mean, I mean, obviously there's going to be more revelations to, to his story. I don't think there's anything specifically more about Nebos uh, in terms of the Bricklayer's intentions. Well, yeah, he said you have to finish. Finish what? Well, the spaceport. Because the tower I, is supposed to be a bridge to the stars. I don't think that's enough. I think there's more. Like, the capstone on the pyramid is really important. That's going to come into play. Okay, and what about his his medium that we almost got a little bit from the engineer about? That it's made from all these ingredients across the tower. The more tower than is that, a zoo. he stopped in the middle of saying what he was about to say. Hmm, I don't remember that. Really? No. Because I clung to that. I was like... Interesting. Okay, so he says... He talks about um, how it's like a time medium. Yeah. Which we have evidence of, Mm -hmm. and the engineer does not as much. Doesn't have evidence from somebody talking about it. Maybe. Um, But he says, and I think it's something else... And then he snaps back to their current circumstances and tries to talk to Semlin again. Oh, the Sphinx. No, the engineer. Oh, the the Wakeman engineer who's talking to Semlin in this book? Yeah. Okay, I thought you were talking about the bricklayer. No. That I was so confused. I'm like, I have no recollection of this, Lauren. No, no, no. Engineer. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, in the conversation where he talks about how the tower is a zoo to grow the ingredients for the medium. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay. Because I I started saying that and you were like, no, not that. (laughs) 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 I was so confused for a second. I specifically remember we were on the plane and I was looking at landmarks while I was listening to this and just thinking about... Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, let's move down the tower. Okay, who first? Senlin. Okay, what do you think of 
So he was going to sabotage originally from as a rower. Mm -hmm. Pulled out. We meet some interesting characters. A woman who would have like killed him as soon as look at him. And yet she's praising him to apparently oh, to like the, Luke Mara. Yeah, the um I don't remember what her title was. The bell ringer or whatever. Master or mistress of the bells. Something like that. Well, yeah. I, I immediately hated her, which I think I was supposed to. Because yeah, of the way like she's she, a slave master. She's well, a slave she, driver. She treated this musician who automatically has my sympathy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then what do you think of the, the other Wakeman? So the spider lady is super creepy. <laughs> yeah, she is. But again, like, this is such a great example uh, of... Like, the creativity, the imagination of Josiah Bancroft here. Like, I I love that he made, like, a spider mech woman. <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> and she's got a glass yeah. around her, oh, her torso. That final line of right where we left off, where she, like, uh, smashed Iron's face against her glass bubble. And then from the inside, like, licked... Where the blood. the blood was on the outside, <laughs> I was like, "Oh man, this is great." <laughs> okay, so so the times where she breathes on the glass and draws like lewd pictures to screw yeah, us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, "What kind of a psycho did you save here, Sphinx?" Yeah, they're well, all the Wake men are psychos this in their own way. This one, especially. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, she is, as far as I'm concerned, she is a psycho. Why, like, why he recruited her and how? So, I, I will be very honest. The first thing I thought of when we were, like, given the full description of her was cyberpunk edge runners. Like, oh. she feels like one of these, like, uh, yeah. like, like one of the cyber yeah. psychos. Like, she's had one. so many modifications that she's Ooh. going crazy. That just, you know, that gave me chills of, like, one of our cyber psychos that we see. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly the scene you're talking about. Uh, uh, if you haven't watched Cyberpunk Edge Runners, uh, it's on Netflix. It's really good, surprisingly really good. Uh, great music, really good music. But yeah, it's like short. I don't know, ten episodes, and we watched it recently, and and it definitely left impressions on both of us. Um, there are some scenes that will stick with me. Oh yeah, but but yeah, so. And then the the other ones, um, the drunk, who's like whole body basically. He's got like the giant, heavy arms, and he can't do fine motor function. And yeah, um, literally like stone hands. He, so Bancroft does almost. a good idea or a, a good job of like making them all feel colorful, but I don't think there's a whole ton of depth to any of the the Wakeman crew. Probably not supposed to be. Um, the, the engineer is the one that I think has the most potential for this. And, and I like how we're set up with this in that, how Senlin is looking at it. So he thinks that Luke Mara is definitely in charge, but this engineer knows that he's the foundation of this. He knows that he has the brain that nobody else has. And he just is socially awkward or 
So I fully enough. expect that Senlin is going to find a way to drive a wedge between Marat and the engineer. I certainly hope so. And we're going to get some like internecine struggle. This engineer struggle. is. Yeah. What is his interesting. name? Interesting. Tell me again. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So again, because this is a an English reader, he says Luke Marat's name with a French accent. It's M A R A T. Yeah, I know. Okay. But he says it like, he says it with a French accent because his name is Luke. L-U-C. Hmm. Interesting. So I keep thinking of him as French. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think there are French people in this world. You don't know where he came from. Gedge. Gedge is the engineer. Can you spell it? G-E-D-G-E. Okay. A hedge with a G. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. So Senlin, his his thing so far is that he has resigned himself to becoming a martyr. And he's uh... been twice now his like potential martyrdom has been pulled away from him, not through his own action. Uh, but he's still looking for it. So this surprises me because he has a daughter to live for. But he sees it as like her life is gone if I can't stop the Hot King. Don't like. I mean, I don't think he's going to actually murder himself. No, that would defeat the story. Maybe. I think you could make an argument for there being a satisfying ending to this where Thomas Senlin dies. I'm not satisfied. But I I I don't personally want that and I think there's a better ending with with him, you know, finally reuniting with Maria. Uh the thing that I'm like most curious about with his plotline right now is uh actually with Finn Gall. I don't buy that he is fully converted to the team of Senlin. No, he's not. And he keeps dropping hints of that. But I don't see him doing anything until Luke Marat's taken down. Yeah, he's totally self-interested. So, uh, other than that, I don't think I have much to say about Senlin. I think there's a lot more, and especially as we're nearly an hour in, uh, about the crew of the state of art. Okay, let's go. Um, I have loved Revelman. I am very entertained by pretty much everything he does now and everything um, he has to say. Waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs> you know it's coming. Yeah, very possible. Very he's, possible. He's gonna go. He's gonna go off script. He's gonna throw a wrench in things at some point. Well, he's not, he doesn't think the same way as everybody else. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think he's going to throw a wrench in things, but I'm not sure it's going to be intentional. Oh, I do. So I, I love that he's actually reading the manuals because nobody reads the manuals. Uh, yeah, he's he's been a good literary device in that where uh, it allows Bancroft to unlock new powers for the characters at appropriate times in the story. Yeah. And, and give it a a good solid reason 
know, he set that up like clear back at the end of Arm of the Sphinx. So like, you know, he's going to come along. He's going to be your pilot. He's going to know the ship. And then at the very beginning of the Hod King, he's got like his face buried in the manuals all the time. So it's been a, it, like these revelations are earned, I should say. Yeah. yeah like yeah. when he figures out the map, you're like, oh yeah, like this makes sense. This is not of some like. Of course would be a map with the yeah, trackers on it. Yeah. Some ass poll like, oh, I need this, this plot device to help the main characters. So we're going to introduce it now. It's like, it feels natural. It feels like this has been there all along and, and it has, you know, they've worked or one of them at least has worked Just one to of achieve them. this. They owe so, a lot to him right now. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's saved them a couple of times and of course there should be a way to track. And I was waiting for a way to track, but I wasn't sure if they had it or the Sphinx just had it hmm. and she was going to tell them where he was. Yeah. But I, I still fully expect a betrayal from him. Nope. I don't want it. I don't want it. How about that? Well, sure, but... I like him right now. Desire and expectation are two different things. I like what he's doing, mm-hmm. and I like having him on our side. Uh, and then we've got the the counterpart to Rettleman in Voletta now. What do you think of Voletta? I think she's she's going to die. Like, this, this feels... Uh, like already they have to up her dosages. This is a terminal addiction kind of thing. Like, I don't think there's a cure for this. I think she's going to go out in a blaze of glory type thing. Like there, it's just too, Hmm. it's too much. Everything about her is too much. Uh, She has the feeling of pressure building in a boiler until it explodes. She does have that. Yeah, I definitely feel it. And, um, and I'm not sure what she's going to do anymore. Well, and so on the bright side, this is the first point in the series since like the beginning of book two that I have felt like the death flags around Iron are dropping. <laughs> and, and I feel like a, an Iron and Anne get their own little future together is more likely. Uh, whereas... Voletta, I think, is going to die. And if you had asked me that, you know, at last the end book. of the last book, I was like, oh, Voletta's going to die and and Iron's going to sacrifice herself saving her. But but now we have the, the switcheroo, so we'll see. But that's where I'm feeling things are heading. Okay, what about Edith? <sighs> Man, I... I don't know if I have an expectation for her. I definitely have a desire for her, and that is not end up with Senlin. I don't think it's even on the table from either end anymore. I I think the door is open, narratively. Sure. Uh, but... But I don't think character... Man, I, I don't want it. She feels like another one who could, like... Who could go out in a blaze of glory. I think the most likely thing is she does take over as Sphinx. Yeah. And that might be sad for her. Mm -hmm. And that's a really bittersweet kind of thing to deal with. Um, Maybe her best possible thing is like retirement in Nebos where they turn Nebos into like a, the Wakeman and the Hods get to, after they do their duty, they get to 
live out their days here. Oh, is it is it like the party at the end of Star Wars? Yeah, with the Ewoks and the and the campfires and everybody dancing. No, I don't understand how that's. Well, similar. you've got Hods and Wakeman. I totally just picture like. <laughs> what? I don't know where the heck you're coming from on that. Are you comparing Hods to Ewoks? <laughs> no. I'm Maybe Wakeman to Ewoks, but. What? <laughs> They're odd. I have no idea where this is coming from. <laughs> yeah, okay, I don't quite see this that. This isn't like a party. It's a, like, you get to retire here and live your days in comfort after working on behalf of the tower. Yeah, what do you think retirement is? It's a party. <sighs> oh, my gosh. I, I... <sighs> This is what I got to watch with my grandparents, is they, they partied it up. This is what it looks like. <laughs> I'm not saying that they won't, like, enjoy themselves, but I, like, the idea of the end of Return of the Jedi is, like, one big, like, jubilant celebration, and then you move on with your life. Whereas this is, this is the rest of your life. I don't know. Uh, I will <laughs> say, I did see Edith as some sort of a replacement well not replacement well, that's the that, wrong that's word that's definitely uh, been spoken out loud now by uh Byron by Byron he's like the sphinx sees you as as her, you know the replacement so i didn't see that because she doesn't seem to have any capabilities engineering wise at all i i think there's an idea here that she would replace the Sphinx as steward, not then, as inventor. Yeah, okay. And I saw Adam as taking care of the engineering side. Mm -hmm. But I'm not That's definitely sure a possibility. anymore. Hey, I did point out at the very beginning of the book of, of Senlin Ascends, I was like, you know, it's weird that Adam's sister is named Voletta. I was expecting something closer to Eve, but Adam and Edith? Oh, Drew, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I think you're 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 trying so hard. I am. I am trying hard. Okay. Uh, Maria. I, there was a lot less of her than I was expecting this. We really she only got, got the one. Fly. But this is really only the one scene. No, and then yeah. she's in with the baby. But there's there's just not much going on with her. I thought we were going to be getting like her as a major point of view character. There's a lot mentally. But she hasn't gotten to take part in the she action. Has, she has very little agency. She's just sort of along she for the ride right now. Not really. She She's not directly affecting the the curve of the story. Like she's just there on the ship. And the one time she did something, it was like, oh well, that was now, granted, I do think she's going to based on what she learned in that scene on the bridge. She's to going to, yeah, she's going to provide a pivotal help during the climax of the book. But, but yeah, I was expecting her to be a much more central character in this book than she has been halfway through. Okay. Hmm. I, I don't see her sitting out. That doesn't seem like her. I understand that she's very concerned with the baby and she should be. Mm-hmm. 
but her character as we've seen it she's very capable yeah yeah um but i don't really have much more to say about her there uh and iron i mean i kind of already talked about iron and Anne. I don't know. I, I'm pretty I'm pretty ready to kind of just go into any miscellaneous points and wrap this thing up. Oh, I definitely have a miscellaneous point to get to. Okay, what do you got? Okay, so I was a nanny for a very long time. Right. And I loved the the scene with the Hod children with Farouk. Mm-hmm. The leader of the kids. Mm-hmm. And he's got like three kids at one point. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like most of the other caretakers are either older children or yes. other men. And I, that's definitely because a lot of the women are taken into other pursuits and not put on the trail as much. Yeah. Hods overwhelmingly are male. Well, yeah, because um, you can make a female a prostitute or right. a sex slave or whatever you want. Yeah. But there are some because there are, there are enough to well, we you know, had, be giving birth to yeah, children. No, yeah. well, these aren't necessarily the children of Hods because they're orphans. Oh, some of them definitely are. Some of them are, but also they're dumped from the ringdoms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I like... I like how good he was with the kids and I like the role reversal, honestly. Yeah. It, it was an interesting wrinkle having the majority of the, the nannies, so to speak, be men. Yeah. And he was, Oh, he's just such a good caretaker. <laughs> like, he's like, look, I'm, I'm going in this first round. I don't care what you say. I need to make sure this is safe right. before I'm going to allow my children mm-hmm. with you alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm honestly trying to think if I have any miscellaneous points that I haven't already talked about. Conservatory. What do you think of that? Uh, that was cool. I mean, it's just like, what the heck? <laughs> he just like went totally berserk and I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> It was an entertaining scene, but yeah, I don't know. Like just, there were some really cool ideas in the tower and I love getting to see each of them explored. I love the idea of the observatory under the lake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it is a, like an open observatory the way I was understanding it written that there's like uh, an opening in the bottom so like the air pressure is keeping the water out but you can dive into the water and swim out of the observatory that's pretty cool yeah it's a it's a neat idea okay so what do you think about the idea that this is just a zoo of sorts for, that the bricklayer was building <sighs> See, this is where I think we still have further answers to get. I I do think the bricklayer had the 
like goals in mind for the furtherance of humanity. He's not just like dreaming. Well, I mean, he's certainly dreaming, but it's not just like, oh, I'm going to enslave humanity to create this thing to serve my own ends. Well, it was never supposed to be enslaved, but. So there's an enslave and enslave. I mean, in the idea of like, I'm going to trap them with their human nature and make them unwittingly serve me. Oh. You know, not like. I'm going to make them all hods and they're literal slaves with collars on. Like, Well, he says yeah. already in what we've seen. Yeah. He's, no. I think he's, he's a lot more um, of a benefactor to humanity and is trying to overcome humanity's tendencies rather than uh, take advantage of them. Do you think he's, I mean, obviously you think he's alive in Adam, but yeah, definitely. do you think he's, Forever going to regenerate? Like a mm. like a god like I don't I mean no, I don't think he's like some What are these what? like more than mortal thing. I think he's got like technology that gives him longevity, but I don't think well, he's got Well why like, why does the Sphinx maybe not have it? The Sphinx has other technologies to keep her alive. I'm not sure what you mean. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't seem as good. Yeah, and because the Sphinx doesn't know the secrets of the bricklayer, that's why, why she not? wants into the because he locked them behind the door where you need all the paintings. Yeah, why not tell her? She would have been the one, the one to tell. He didn't think she was ready. And it was such an unexpected death, and he took this long to come back. I don't think it was a death. Okay, you're right. Quote, death. <laughs> Do you think he shows up in this book? Do you think we know? Yes, absolutely. The bricklayer is 100% going to show up in this book. What about the Sphinx? Yes. Sphinx is going to die. But yes. Okay. Other predictions? I think I've gone through everything already. Uh, but yeah, I think we should wrap things up here. We do still have the final draft. Oh, yes. Um, what have you been drinking? So I have been drinking a very frou-frou 7% alcoholic <laughs> smoothie beer. Yes. <laughs> uh, strawberry raspberry lemon ice. Not sure what lemon ice is. So we... <laughs> Best stored upside down, Drew. Oh, best stored upside down. It was Did definitely not upside down uh, on the shelf at the store. <laughs> uh, well, maybe you should do the label upside down if you're going to. That's Oh, that's a good point. But, but yeah, so we're pretty sure we actually have had a different variant of this beer oh, for on sure. for one of the yep. other. Uh, but. But not this version. Not this version, yeah. Uh, so what is it, Lauren? It is Secret Machine. Yes, very appropriate. Continually appropriate for this. And, Perpetually. And, uh, who's the brewer? It's Denver. Oh, Dewey. I thought it was Denver beer. Dewey beer. Where Dewey are you? Beer. Uh, Colorado. Really? Yeah. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> okay, CO always 
brings Colorado to me, but okay. it's company this time. Uh, yes. <laughs> Milton, Delaware. <laughs> Delaware. All right. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I am drinking a triple IPA uh, from Burlington Beer Company in Vermont. Uh, not actually Burlington, Vermont, from Williston, Vermont, which I assume is right next door to Burlington. Sure. Uh, Spears a lot. Okay, can I? It's 10%, and I'm like, ooh, struggling to finish it. Are you it. really? Yeah. Um, do we have hops? I don't think we do. Hey, good news. There's no diacetyl. No, it, the, it tasted like it tasted pretty good. Uh, it's just a lot. <laughs> I smell the alcohol and I feel it. Yeah. It's hot. But this beer is called Riddle of the Stinks. What? Which no is way. both generally applicable to the series, but also specifically here because we still don't really know what's going on with the Sphinx and why everything's locked down and nobody can communicate with her. I doubt that something simple that Luke Mara could do would so do that. I'm... This is one of the things that I, like, I don't know if I just missed something in Arm of the Sphinx or, or in, in Hod King, rather, but in Oren Robinson's, like, recap... He just casually says that uh, the the Sphinx's like stuff got sabotaged, and that's why it's uh, locked down. Let me see if I can find the quote here. Uh, yeah. So to make matters worse, Captain Winters has been cut off from her master by sabotage. One of Marat's youthful conscripts crippled the central fuse station entombed beneath the streets of Pelphia, an act that apparently sealed the Sphinx inside her home. So I remember that happening in the Hod King, but I didn't remember any indication that like that was specifically going to affect the Sphinx. And so being told it just like outright here, I'm like, I don't do I trust that? Like I don't know if I do. Anyway, it was weird. It was weird. So I know, I remember when they tried to see her. Yeah, the doors wouldn't open. Yeah, but I don't remember getting a whole lot more than that. We don't. We don't. So, anyway. So that's the riddle of the Sphinx right now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, This has been episode, I believe, 206 of Inking Out Loud. Next up, we will almost certainly just going to be finishing off uh, the Fall of Babel, finishing up the series. <laughs> Fall of Babel. Yeah. But, uh, you know, as always, you can check us out on Patreon to get access to all the bonus content there and help support the show. I appreciate it a great deal, everybody who has done that already. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey. And with me is my special guest, Lauren McCaffrey. Cheers. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.